Ezra uh, chapter 7. Ezra 7, verse 1. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Bucky, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisers to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisers have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem." You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury." Now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasurers of trans-Euphrates are to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred bars of wine, a hundred bars of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence, for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? 
you are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Uh, my name's Ian, I'm one of the members here, and uh, I'm able to speak at the kind invitation of the elders here. We've been working through the book of Ezra on Sunday mornings this year, as you'll know. However, the character who the book is named after hasn't even been mentioned yet, until chapter 7 when Ezra suddenly comes on the scene. So you might ask the question, why is the book called Ezra if he doesn't appear until two-thirds of the way through? Well, it's widely believed that Ezra was the author of both this book and the next book of Nehemiah. Indeed, it's thought that these two books may have originally been one book and were split later. And we should note in starting that there is a gap of 57 years between the completion of the Jerusalem temple in chapter 6 that Aaron spoke about last week and Ezra's return from Babylon, where many Jews were still living in exile, in chapters 7 and 8. Ezra led what is often called the second return of Jewish exiles back to their homeland in 458 BC. The first return was about 80 years earlier under Zerubbabel in chapters 1 and 2. So what can we learn about this character called Ezra? Firstly, we learn from verses 1 to 5 that he had solid Jewish religious credentials. Many of his ancestors listed in verses 1 to 5 were good spiritual leaders of their day. For instance, in verse 1, Hilkiah was high priest during the reign of godly King Josiah and rediscovered the book of the law whilst the temple was being repaired in 2 Kings 22. And then there was Zadok in verse 2. He was faithful to King David during his most difficult times, especially when Absalom and Adonijah tried to capture the crown. And then in verse 5, 
Phinehas was the courageous priest in Moses' day who was honored for opposing Israel's compromise with the Midianites in Numbers 25. So we can see then that Ezra was descended from some godly religious leaders. But however godly a person's family or a person's ancestors are or were, it makes no difference to an individual's personal relationship with the Lord. To try to claim a place in heaven because I grew up in a Christian home or my grandfather was a church minister is irrelevant to God. You see, the question he will ask on the coming day of judgment is, what have you done with Jesus? Are you trusting him and trusting him alone for salvation? Now, don't get me wrong. It's a great privilege to grow up and come from a home where the Lord is honored and obeyed. But yet, if you don't accept Jesus Christ into your own heart as your own savior, it will make no difference. You will still be lost for eternity. He had solid Jewish religious credentials, but much more importantly than that, from verses 6 to 10, he was a man of the book. A man of the book. Look at the first part of verse 6 of our text. <coughs> this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The law of Moses consists of the first five books of what we know today as the Old Testament. It contains all the laws and instructions given to the Israelites to enable them to live obediently for the Lord. And Ezra had spent his life studying the law in exile in Babylon, so he knew it very well indeed. But look at what we also learn down in verse 10. It says there, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And we note that he had devoted himself to study the law. He, he put his whole heart into it. Now, studying God's word is not something that happens easily. This world is busy. There are lots of things jostling for our time, and we can easily fill all our days with lots of activities. And the same was true in the 5th century BC. But Ezra didn't allow distractions to keep him from God's word. He devoted himself to the study of it. And likewise, if we're going to be good students of God's word, we're going to have to be prepared to set aside the time that's required for that. We need to make it a priority in our lives 
something that's not easy to do. But Ezra not only thoroughly knew the law, he put it into practice in his life. And that's so important, isn't it? That faithful followers of the Lord make it their goal to obey God's word. And when we do that, people will see the difference that it makes to our lives. He studied the law, he obeyed the law, and then thirdly, he also taught the, the law to others. And that's the right order to do things. If we miss out a step, then we're asking for trouble. You see, if we study and teach God's word, steps one and three, without obeying it, well, that's hypocrisy. We have to practice what we preach. Likewise, to practice and to teach his word, steps two and three, without thoroughly understanding what we're practicing and teaching, well, that can lead to error and heresy. But Ezra was faithful in all three. He studied God's word. Then he observed God's word in his life. And then he taught God's word to others. And as believers in Christ, that's what we should be doing in our lives too. We need to know God's word. We need to put it into practice in our lives. And then we should be willing to share it with others. Now, Ezra's study, observance, and teaching of God's law wasn't merely an outward show of religion or his way of trying to earn God's approval by working as hard as possible. Rather, God's word had transformed his heart and he obeyed God's laws because he truly knew and loved the Lord for himself. Now, how do we know that? Because of the Lord's response to Ezra in verse 6. It says there, For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And then we see a very similar phrase at the end of verse 9. It says, For the gracious hand of his God was on him. The Lord was his God. He had a personal relationship with him by faith. And that was expressed in his outward obedience to God's word. And therefore the Lord was with him. And the Lord granted him success in his activities. Now, I'd just like to pause for a moment here and contrast Ezra with another group of very knowledgeable men. These men lived in Jesus' day and were known not only for their zealous study of God's laws, but their rigid application of those laws as they taught the people and policed their observance of them. They were the Pharisees, who might even be described as religious fanatics. 
They thought that the best way to please God was to keep every rule in God's law and lots more rules besides. But the problem was that God's word had no impact on their hearts. There was no love, there was no compassion in their actions, and they often said one thing, but did something different. And therefore, for the Pharisees, instead of the gracious hand of their God being on them, as it was with Ezra, Jesus condemned them in Matthew 23 and verse 28 as being full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And we also must avoid the error of thinking that the way to experience God's gracious hand upon my life is merely by studying God's word diligently and obeying it. The harder I work, the more I try, the more God will be pleased with me and the more he'll reward me. Just listen for a moment to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. He wrote this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, grace is God's completely undeserved favor towards those who deserve the opposite. None of us deserve forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven. But the person who turns in faith and trust to Jesus Christ, believing that he died upon the cross and rose again, taking the punishment that our sins deserve in our place, receives eternal life in heaven. And there's nothing, that, uh, there's nothing else that anyone can do to gain salvation. As Paul confirms at the end of verse 8, he writes, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. We can contribute nothing to our salvation. As, as Paul confirms in verse 9, not of works, lest anyone should boast. As the 19th century hymn writer Edward Mote put it, no merit of my own I claim, but holy trust in Jesus' name. Now, of course, Ezra lived 450 years before Jesus Christ came to earth, and he wouldn't have known God's gospel of grace through faith in Christ in the way that we do. Nevertheless, we see that he was a man of faith in God, a man who demonstrated that faith through his diligent study and practical observance of God's word. May we also strive to study God's word and obey it in our lives, but we do so knowing that the foundation of our relationship with God is his great love for us shown in Jesus Christ and all he accomplished for us.
as the old chorus by Eric Swinstead goes. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Well, in what particular way was the gracious hand of God evident upon Ezra? Well, we're given the answer at the end of verse 6, where it says that the king had granted him everything he asked. We don't exactly know how Ezra came to the attention of King Artaxerxes, but we do know that in the seventh year of his reign, he commissioned Ezra to return to Jerusalem along with a company of others listed in verse 7 including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants. Such is the power of our God, that he can move in the hearts even of the rulers of world empires. But the amazing thing is, he often does so through the faithful prayers and actions of ordinary men and women like Ezra. Now in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, we're called to pray for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. You see, through our prayers to the Lord, who is ruler over all, we can seek to influence our leaders indirectly so that they adopt policies enabling people to live out their faith in a safe and peaceful environment. So we should pray for our leaders. Additionally, we can give thanks that we still have the freedom in this country to try to influence our leaders by contacting them directly. For instance, the Christian Institute often contact those on their mailing list, asking them to write to their local MP about certain issues being debated in Parliament that impact our Christian faith and practice. And we should use that freedom wisely and well. So let's briefly see what King Artaxerxes granted Ezra and his companions. First of all, we see that he granted them permission to travel. Verse 13 of Ezra chapter 7. Now, I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. And we note that the decision to return was voluntary. There were no strong-arm tactics employed. Likewise, God today wants willing volunteers to undertake work for him. Those who feel called, not coerced, to serve in different ministries. Secondly, the king granted them financial provision in verses 15 to 16. 
as you look at those verses, you'll see that the king didn't simply say, go and leave them to fund it themselves. But he made a generous contribution of gold and silver from the coffers of his own treasury, along with whatever other funds was collected from those who chose to remain behind. And then thirdly, in verse 17, they were given the ability to offer sacrifices. Now, that was especially important to the Jewish people, as regular sacrifices for sins was a key part of Old Testament law when it was conducted with the right heart attitude. And if you look at verse 22, you'll see just how generous the king's allowances for the various sacrifices and for meeting the needs of the temple workers was. In fact, it ran into thousands of kilograms of silver and wheat and thousands of liters of wine and olive oil. But of course, we know from our series through Hebrews last year that for us, such sacrifices are obsolete. For Christ is our once-for-all sacrifice, whose shed blood has forever washed away the sins of all who believe in him. Fourthly, the king uh, granted Ezra the choice in how to spend the remaining resources. Verse 18. You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Ezra had proved himself so reliable in the eyes of the king that he was trusted to make wise decisions on how to spend the generous resources provided. It reminds me of Potiphar in Genesis 39, who, when he saw that the Lord was with his slave Joseph, put him in charge of his household and entrusted to his care everything he owned. That's chapter 39 and verse 4. Something similar happened to Daniel as well in Daniel chapter 6. May we, through our diligent faith in the Lord Jesus, make such an impression on those around us that we also may be seen to be totally reliable and trustworthy. What a witness that is to a watching world. Fifthly, we see in verse 24 that they were granted exemption from paying certain taxes. And then in verses 25 and 26, they were even granted a measure of self-government. Once again, it was due to the God-given wisdom of Ezra and his depth of knowledge of God's laws that persuaded King Artaxerxes to permit a certain level of self-rule for the Jewish people. Well, why would the ruler of the strongest empire in the world at that time, <coughs> Persia, show such concern for a small group of seemingly insignificant people? Well, ultimately, 
It was the overruling hand of God in this situation. God's purpose was to bring Ezra and the others back to Jerusalem to restore and lead the worship of him in the rebuilt temple. And he worked in the life of Artaxerxes to make that happen. But there is perhaps another reason uh, hinted at in verse 23. For we read there, Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? Despite the great power that uh, King Artaxerxes wielded, it seems that he was afraid as well that if Ezra's God of heaven was truly powerful, he didn't want to get on the wrong side of him and suffer the consequences of his anger. Therefore, perhaps he hoped that by granting these generous concessions to Ezra and the Jewish people, that their God would look favorably upon him and his empire as well. However, there's no indication that Artaxerxes came to personal faith in the Lord, which is what he really needed to do. And today, some may try to persuade God to look favorably upon them by doing something good, such as coming to church, or putting some money in the offering, or giving up chocolate and ice cream for Lent, or whatever else uh, you might think of. But actually, what the Lord really wants from us is our hearts. He longs for people to invite Jesus Christ into their hearts and lives as their Savior and Lord, so that we might love him and serve him faithfully. And whilst we cannot effectively live for him in our own strength, praise God that he gives us the wisdom and ability to do so by the Holy Spirit, who indwells every true Christian. As the Apostle Paul testified in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And as Ezra reflected on all that was happening with the king, of Artax king Artaxerxes, he began to praise the Lord for what was happening through their lives. Look at verse 27 and into the first part of verse 28. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Ezra didn't boast about what he'd managed to achieve and gain from the king, but he gave all the credit and all the glory to God. This was ultimately the Lord's doing, not Ezra's. 
and how careful we must be to ensure that God gets all the honor and praise for whatever he enables us to accomplish here at Stapleford Baptist Church. And we note that key phrase once again at the end of verse 28. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. You see, Ezra trusted the Lord. He studied and obeyed his word. And so the hand of the Lord was on his life. So that even the king of a world empire was caused to act favorably towards him and his people. And as he saw God at work through Artaxerxes, bringing about his plans and purposes, it, at the end of verse 28, gave Ezra courage to press on with the return to Jerusalem, knowing this was surely the Lord's work for him to do. And we too can know the hand of the Lord upon our lives if we trust him wholeheartedly and seek to obey him in every part of our life. Now, this doesn't mean that world leaders today will necessarily behave favorably towards faithful Christians as Artaxerxes did towards the Jewish people. Indeed, often quite the opposite happens. But our calling is simply to live faithfully and obediently for Christ and leave the results of that to the Lord. You see, he sees everything and he knows everything. And one day, he will judge the wicked and reward the faithful. And so as we see the Lord here moving through hearts and lives, may that, take, may that grant us courage. May we take courage from what we see and aim to press on more boldly with the work that he has called us to do here, making Christ known to our communities. What a mighty saviour we serve.